Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 14, A Master of the Balkans. Now, last time, we ended with the Council of Preslav, handing over the reins of power from Boris to his son Simeon, after Boris's other son, Vladimir, was thrown into a dungeon for attempting to re-paganize Bulgaria. It's been a while, so I want to start by recapping a little bit. First, who was Simeon? He was the younger son of Boris, a man who, by all accounts, was never intended to rule Bulgaria. As such, he was sent to study in Constantinople in his youth. Here he became what was probably the best educated Bulgarian up to that point in history. He was studying at what was perhaps the best university in the world in Constantinople. All this was to prepare him for a life translating texts in the educational centers his father was establishing. In Constantinople, he was very well trained for this. After the decade or so he spent there, he spoke fluent Greek, leading to his nickname, the half-Greek, Hemiargus, and had already done some significant translation work of Christian texts. Also, owing to his being born after his father's conversion, he had been a devoted Christian his entire life, unlike his now-deposed brother, Vladimir. So this brings us to the event I want to talk a little bit more about in the beginning, the Council of Preslav. In the aftermath of the devastation of Vladimir's rebellion, much of Pliska lay in ruins, and the leaders of Bulgaria decided to gather with Boris in Preslav to find a way forward from the crisis. The first choice was obviously to find a replacement for Vladimir. Interestingly enough, Simeon wasn't all that obvious a choice. But Boris did not want to reclaim the throne he had relinquished for a monastery, a monastic existence only a few years previously. He was done with power. He didn't want it again. He also, for mysterious reasons, did not want to give the throne to his next oldest son, Gavriel. So Simeon was chosen. As part of this new succession, a new law was established which allowed the ruler to be succeeded by his brother instead of only by his son. The next choice made by the council was also an interesting and vitally important one. The pagan roots of the now ruined city of Pliska had made themselves abundantly clear in Vladimir's rebellion. And now it was clear that if the new Christian kingdom was going to survive, it was going to have to find itself a capital full of loyal citizens, citizens loyal to not just the Tsar, but to Christianity, and to the policies that Simeon was about to lay down. Preslav, therefore, was the obvious choice, both for its fulfillment of these requirements and its proximity to the monastery where Boris had retired, allowing him to continue to advise his son and monitor events. An interesting choice was also the council's decision to banish the Byzantine clergy and replace it entirely with Bulgarian clerics. Now, this must have come 
as an early shock to those who believe that the half-Greek Simeon may be a sort of Manchurian candidate in the Bulgarian court. Even before Simeon had ascended a throne, he and the council as a whole were making it very abundantly clear that his education and his time in Constantinople and his Greek language abilities were not about to dictate how he would rule. Finally, in a similar vein to the banishment of the Byzantine priests, the council decided that Old Church Slavonic would be the official language of the Orthodox liturgy in Bulgaria. Now, this was a momentous decision. Had Greek remained the language of the church, it would have set a precedent for many of the other Slavic peoples who would slowly be converting in the coming centuries to Christianity, to Orthodox Christianity. As it would have also created a competing uh, literary language within Bulgaria. It would have encouraged writers to continue writing in Greek and not in Old Church Slavonic. Because, in fact, much of the successes of Bulgarian culture that we're going to see in the next few centuries are very directly linked to this decision. Again, proving that despite Simeon's mastery of Greek, he was not about to bow to it. So overall, the decisions of the Council of Preslav seem to contain some interesting contradictions. It was decided to move closer to Christianity, but farther from the Byzantines. In this way, a unique course was set, one which had obvious advantages, but was also about to bring swift retribution from a Byzantine emperor in no way amused by these slights. So, the retribution came within a year. Ever since the Treaty of 716 during the reign of Khan Tervel, Bulgarian-Byzantine commerce had been strictly regulated and fairly prosperous. Bulgaria both produced a wealth of products and stood along several vital trade routes from the rest of Europe heading towards Constantinople. But due to some palace intrigue, about which not so much is known, the customs house where all Bulgarian goods entering the Byzantine Empire was moved from Constantinople, where it had sat along the other foreign customs houses, to Thessaloniki, a few hundred kilometers away. Now, while this was the second city of the empire, it was not the trade hub of the empire. And this move resulted in more corruption, a massive inconvenience for Bulgarian traders, and a huge amount of lost revenue for those same traders. As a result, unsurprisingly, they protested strongly. And so Simeon sent an embassy to discuss the matter with the Byzantine emperor Leo VI. When his diplomats were ignored, Simeon went on the offensive, an interesting move for a man who would have been a high priest. So Simeon struck at his former home, quickly occupying much of the southern Balkan mountains. Unfortunately for the Byzantines, they faced their classic dilemma. Most of their best troops were far away in Anatolia, guarding against an Arab invasion. So the force the emperor had to send out against the Bulgarians, while large, was definitely not of the highest quality. The force they sent to meet Simeon was led by an Armenian general and came into contact with the Bulgarians in the Them of Macedonia, which is in modern Thrace. While we don't have a lot of details about this particular battle, we do know it was a Bulgarian victory resulting in the death of that Armenian general, 
as well as the shaming of the captured imperial guard of Khazars by the cutting off of their noses before they were allowed to return to Constantinople. You'll remember from previous episodes that cutting off someone's nose is a very typical Byzantine way to shame someone for life and disqualify them from most positions of prominence. Following this Bulgarian victory and the extensive raiding in the area they did after it, the emperor was appalled by his defeat and the shame which came along with it. But he wasn't about to surrender. Instead, he responded by devising a better strategy than meeting the Bulgarians head-on. He sent two embassies out, one to the Franks, we don't know its exact purpose, but it's believed to have been intended to discourage an alliance with the Bulgarians, and the other embassy to the Magyars, to persuade them to cross the Danube and invade Bulgaria from the north. Leo himself put, this, put it this way in a book he later wrote on military tactics, quote, at that time, the Bulgarians had disregarded the peace treaty and were raiding through the Thracian countryside. Justice pursued them for breaking their oath to Christ our God, the emperor of all, and they quickly met up with their punishment. While our forces were engaged against the Saracens, divine providence led the Hungarians, in place of the Romans, to campaign against the Bulgarians. Our Majesty's fleet of ships supported them and ferried them across the Danube. Providence sent them out against the army of the Bulgarians that had so wickedly taken up arms against Christians, and, as though they were the public executioners, they decisively defeated them in three engagements, so that the Christian Romans might not willingly stain themselves with the blood of the Christian Bulgarians. End quote. So clearly Leo, in spite of his partial instigation of the war, felt that he had been severely betrayed by the Bulgarians, and thought of this strategy as sort of letting pagans bleed so Christians wouldn't have to. Of course, this involved ignoring the fact that he was paying pagans to kill Christians. But Leo clearly had an eye for strategy and diplomacy, and at this stage he was playing his cards very well, considering what a horrible defeat he had just been inflicted. At this point in the war, I think it's important to step back for a moment and go into a bit of detail on the Magyars, as they're going to be key players in our story for quite a while to come. So, you'll remember that the Magyars followed a similar path to the Proto-Bulgarians, slowly migrating from the Eurasian steppe into Europe, establishing different states as they moved. After they migrated from the North Caucasus into the area northwest of the Black Sea, sometime between 750 and 830, they became yet another powerful tribe on Europe and Bulgaria's doorstep. But you know that from before, uh, a few things have changed at this point. First of all, the Hungarians were by now much more united under two rulers, Kurzan and Arpad. While their exact roles as sort of dual leaders are still debated today, only Kurzan was known to many of their neighbors, but Arpad as it seems, was ultimately the more important of the two. What is clear is that their leadership together was strong and decisive at this critical stage in Hungarian history. So just as the Hungarians were preparing to attack Bulgaria around a year into the war, Leo was also gathering strength. He called on Byzantium's best general, Phocas the Elder, 
to lead a new Byzantine army against Simeon. At the same time, as he met, the emperor mentioned in his quote, the Byzantine navy sailed to the Danube to ferry the Magyars across. Once again, the lack of a Bulgarian navy, something we've talked about time and time again, became critical, as Bulgaria had essentially no way to prevent the Byzantine navy from doing this. But the Bulgarians did have some tricks up their sleeves. They stretched a chain across the Danube to prevent the Byzantine navy from entering it. But the Byzantines managed to break it and successfully ferry the entire Magyar force across the Great River. The result was that Simeon had to move his forces north to meet this new threat. The two armies met in Dobruja, and the Bulgarians were severely defeated. No doubt Simeon's army must have been exhausted after having to rush north so quickly. Simeon fled to the Danube fortress of Drastar, modern-day Silistra in Bulgaria, and there was forced to watch as the Magyars raided to the outskirts of Preslav itself. But this is a true low point. Some went to visit Boris in the monastery and ask him for her advice, his advice. All he could offer were suggestions of fasting and prayer. But fortunately, Simeon had a much better idea. An embassy was sent to Constantinople to ask for peace negotiations to begin. But Simeon, actually, had no intention of obtaining peace with the Byzantines just yet. What he needed was time. Time to defeat the Magyars. Luckily for him, Leo took his offer seriously and withdrew his forces. But when the Byzantine negotiators arrived, they were put under armed guard and tricked into lengthier and lengthier negotiations while the Bulgarians prepared for an all-out assault on the raiding Magyars. So clearly, Simeon had learned from his previous encounters. Yes, the Magyars were fierce warriors, and before long, all of Europe would be reciting the prayer, O Lord, save us from the arrows of the Hungarians. So Simeon embarked on a similar strategy to that which Leo had just employed against him. He sent an envoy to the Pechenegs, yet another steppe tribe, which had been themselves pushed west from the upper reaches of the Volga by the, Og by the Oguz Turks. I'm maybe not pronouncing that right. So, anyways, from their position above the Black Sea in modern Ukraine, the Pechenegs were perfectly positioned to strike at the Magyars from behind while the Bulgarians attacked them head-on. So, after the Bulgarians won an intense battle which resulted in massive casualties on both sides, the joint attacks utterly devastated the entire Magyar people. This was in fact a critical moment, not just in this war, but in all of European history, as the destruction of Magyar settlements pushed that people further westward, ultimately, to the lands they occupy today, the Pannonian Plain of modern Hungary. The Pechenegs, in turn, settled where the Magyars had been, and would soon make themselves a key force in Balkan and Eastern European politics. So, following the utter defeat of the Magyars, Simeon could turn back to Emperor Leo with an entirely new set of demands. The emperor was willing to sue for peace at this point, having never been enthusiastic about diverting his attention from the Arab threats in the east. But, unfortunately for him, 
His best general, Focus, the elder that we mentioned, had just died. In response to this news, Simeon decided that maybe it was not time to end the war just yet. Using the claim that not all the prisoners whose release he had demanded had indeed been released, just sort of an excuse to continue the war, his confidence in himself in this critical moment was recorded in a letter he sent to to, uh, a member of, I believe, the Byzantine court, openly mocking the Byzantine emperor's astrological abilities and his diplomatic abilities, two things he considered himself very skilled in. So we can see that Simeon has some uh, incredible kind of sort of self-confidence in this moment. He sees this, this uh, opportunity that's been laid in front of him and he's ready to grab it. So both sides are now preparing for a final showdown. The Byzantines concluded a quick truce with the Arabs so they could transfer all of their available forces to Thrace. At the same time, Simeon gathered all of his own forces and moved southwest. The armies met in Thrace at a place called Bulgarovgon, Bulgarovgon, something like that. It's a very difficult Greek word. And we don't have details of this battle, but we do know that the Byzantines were utterly routed, sustaining enormous casualties and losing many of their commanders in the process. You can check out some great visual depictions of the battle on the website. The Bulgarians then proceeded to Constantinople, inflicting devastation on the countryside as they went. The Emperor Leo was by now terrified at the outcome and frantically searching for a way to save the empire and its city. He resorted to arming captured Arabs and sending them out against the Bulgarians. Now, here things don't seem to make a lot of sense. Uh, Simeon doesn't seem to have fought these Arab captives, but he did somehow decide to stop prior to mounting a full attack on Constantinople, something we've seen happen over and over in Bulgarian history. The Bulgarians inflict some massive defeat on the Byzantines, and they march on Constantinople, and they always seem to stop. Maybe it's the walls of the city, I don't know. So, what we do know then is that the Bulgarians and the Byzantines entered in this moment into peace negotiations, which resulted in a treaty which was finalized in the year 897. This treaty had the Byzantines giving annual tribute to Simeon. It also restored the Bulgarian-Byzantine commercial relationship to what it had been before. Remember, that's actually why all this started. And it gave the Bulgarians more land in Thrace. You can see a map on the website. At the same time all of this had been happening, Serbia had been experiencing a series of coups and dynastic feuds. This, of course, led to great instability, but it also created a classic situation where those looking to sit on the throne needed strong external allies. The result was that Kinyaz Peter of Serbia signed an alliance with Simeon the same year Simeon signed the peace treaty with the Byzantines. This alliance had the Bulgarians guarantee Peter's throne in exchange for Peter, placing himself under Simeon's rule for 20 years. Thus, Simeon managed to expand his territory and do exactly what his father had failed to do, conquer the Serbs, but without shedding a drop of Bulgarian blood. So Bulgaria entered into the year 898 looking 
and in fact being a master of the Balkans. The Byzantines, Magyars, and Serbs had all been defeated in one way or another. Money was coming in from a well-run state as well as from Byzantine tribute. Culture was flourishing in Ohrin and Preslav, and the, and the Tsar Simeon was only in his mid-twenties. In fact, Simeon felt so secure during the next 16 years of his reign that he repeatedly violated the peace treaty he just signed with the Byzantines by leading raids and generally bullying them into giving up more and more and more territory. The best-known case was in 904, when the Bulgarians worked with the Arabs to attack Thessaloniki. The Arabs had just taken the city and run off with an immense amount of treasure. So just after they left, Simeon arrived at the city ready to take it for himself prompting the emperor to grant him even more territory north of the city, the new border would now be about 22 kilometers from it, as well as recognizing long-standing Bulgarian conquests in Macedonia, all in exchange for Simeon not taking the city. So, I want to bring this episode to an end here, at 904, with Simeon bullying the Byzantines and exerting his dominance in the region because this is, I think, a rough halfway point in Simeon's reign, and it's going to be a very long and very eventful reign. Now, this moment, 904, when the, a new treaty is concluded between the, the Byzantines and the Bulgarians, one I just mentioned, is going to begin about 10 years of peace. Now, as usual, we don't really know very much about what happens in Bulgaria during peacetime. The sources we have just tend to talk a lot about the wars. So, this sort of quiet 10 years, I think, is a good point to take a pause. So, the next episode should be out within a few weeks, and look forward to hearing the conclusion of the history of Simeon the Great, and understanding truly and fully why he is known as the Great. This podcast is produced by Martin Christel. The composer of our theme music is Teddy Raven, and the story is written by me, Eric Halsey. Help us spread the word by liking us on Facebook and writing us a review on iTunes. Seriously, by liking us on Facebook, you can keep track of the latest developments, you can see the occasional interesting articles and images and documentaries and things that I post there, and you can join in the conversation. You can ask uh, myself or Martin questions, anything you like. So, what are you waiting for? Jump in, engage, join a conversation, check out some of the content. Also, don't forget to check out the website, bghistorypodcast.com. There, as usual, you'll find useful resources that will come along with each episode. For this episode, we've got a cool map and several really, really cool old uh, sort of drawings and things of some Byzantine and Bulgarian battles. Finally, as always, please consider making a donation with the PayPal button on the website. It really makes a big difference to us. It's a big rush every time we get a donation, and uh, it makes Martin and I incredibly appreciative of all your generosity. So, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, Happy Holidays, Veseli Prasnitsi, and until next time, Uspech, or in English, good luck.